So you're welcome to like revisit it, but I'll probably be like, uh, I don't know, just pick the right tool for the job, everybody. It depends. Hello, welcome to the bike shed. It depends. <laughs> it's a show about it depends. It's and... a show about it depends. <laughs> cool. All right. Lots of good pre-roll. So <laughs> let's get into the real roll now. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steffi Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So hey Chris, how's your week going? My week is going well. Yeah, I got some some things done at work, moving a project along, and that's always nice to like have a thing that's been in motion for a while actually get close to the finishing line. But in terms of sort of fun little asides that I've been on, I finally upgraded my Tmux after a long time. I, I tend to lag behind a lot on like operating system upgrades and things like that, just because I don't feel like dealing with when it breaks. But in this rare instance, I actually installed the current head install of Tmux because I wanted to get the floating pop-up windows. I wanted the new fancy feature, which is only available in currently, I think it's the release candidate for 3.2 or something like that. But it's a rare case where I was like, not only do I want the current cutting edge, I want that new new, uh, the whole thing. But yeah, I now have pop-up windows in Tmux. So like a little modal window over everything else. And it's really great for very quick interstitial sort of thing. So I'm using it for session switching, quick access to my dot files if I want to like quickly change something in there. Or I have a little notes workflow that I'm working on. So now that I, I have the ability to like pop up a little notes window very quickly, I can dive in and I'm in Vim inside of a certain directory editing a notes file. And it's nice to be able to like pop that up and remind myself what's my to-do list for the day, but then very quickly dismiss it and still have the full context of everything behind it. So yeah, brew install tmux dash dash capital head. That's that's how you get there. Nice. Yeah, I feel like I have access to a pop-up feature for when I'm navigating files. It's a really nice feature, but you mentioned that you're on the latest and greatest, which I'm pretty sure I'm not. So now I'm second guessing as to which pop-up feature I'm actually using. I'm guessing you are using the BIM pop-up, which was a relatively recent addition as well, but like in the past couple of years, as opposed to the Tmux one is not even fully released yet. NeoVim had it for a while, and then regular Vim now has pop-up as well. So like FCF and file switching within Vim, I use Vim's pop-up window. I think I do. I don't even actually know at this point, but the Tmux one will be over all of the windows rather than just your Vim window. It'll look very similar, and frankly, you could use one for the other, but yeah, it was just a cool thing that I wanted to add. But yeah, you probably do not have it. If you want to check, it's tmux-v is the way you check the version in tmux because they had to, I don't know why they did that. It's not dash dash version or dash lowercase v or any of the other normal variants. It's dash capital V. But yeah, I think it's 3.2 RC whatever that I'm on. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to tinker with that because uh, I'm interested in seeing the difference if there's like a improvement in between being able to like the Vim pop-up feature that I have now versus like you said, if I can see across more windows, the files that are there. I don't know if that'll really change my workflow, but I'm intrigued to find out. Yeah, it's one of those things that I don't know that it's that useful, but I wanted it. I wanted something to play with. I actually, although I have built a reputation on the internet as someone who messes with their Vim configuration and Tmux configuration a lot. That has really no, been not, that's not true. You. I, I, I had a period of time, <laughs> yes, where that was true, but I've definitely backed away from it in the recent years. And I kind of just gave myself permission on this one. I was like, that seems fun. Let's try that. So it's novel and it's fun. I don't think it's going to be game changing or anything, but it was a nice addition. 
So yeah, I added that. But actually, in other news, uh, I have a blog post that by the time this goes live will be coming out. But it's one of those where I, I keep trying to get myself to write more and share more things. And so in this case, it is a script that I wrote called WVIM. So all one word, WVIM, which combines which and Vim. So you can very easily edit any script or command or shell alias or function or whatever that you have. You just say like WVIM and then the name of the command and it will open up Vim editing that script or function or get alias or whatever. I added a couple different special cases for the different things. That's one of those nice little things that I added to my workflow a long time ago, and I felt like it was worth highlighting and sharing with folks. So I'd be interested to see if folks find it interesting, but I'll at least have written a blog post about it and shared it with the world. And you said this hasn't aired just yet because I'm, I'm looking at your, your site right now, but I don't see it. Much like last week when you imply that there was a blog post and then I felt bamboozled. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm bamboozling you, but I will make sure that it is live by the time this episode actually is released. So for anyone listening in the audience, that blog post is live and you can go to c2me.com slash writing and you'll find it or we'll probably have a link in the show notes. I like this bit of preview for like up and coming blog posts. It's a bit of like a trailer and it's coming soon to your internet. It's, it's cool. I'm, I'm into this. So this way I know about it and I have something to look forward to to read. And if we're being honest, it's really just a psychological trick for myself to force myself to publish it. Because if I didn't say this now, then I wouldn't be locked in. But at this point, I've committed to it sort of publicly in the future. And I must hold myself honest. So yeah, healthy, forced productivity. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy force productivity, indeed, may just be the name of the episode today. But uh, yeah, how about you? What's uh, what's new in your world? Uh, well, a bit of personal news. So I am taking four weeks off from work, which is pretty exciting. It's a goal that I've had in mind for a couple of years now where I just wanted to take an extended leave of time. I think the most amount of time I typically take off is just probably about a week. That's probably the most I've taken off is about a week from work. So I wanted some extra downtime and just started planning ahead to make it happen. And it's already a interesting mix of where I'm starting to wonder, should I be dreaming up projects that I'm going to complete during that time? Or is that just my default work ethics kicking in and trying to override my downtime? So I'm trying to find a balance between those two voices. I'm not sure where I'll land. I was actually going to be one of my first questions was, is this going to be a completely away from computers time or now I get to explore new technologies? I don't know. I want to say yes to both, <laughs> which is a problem. <laughs> that is tricky. Yes. I'm sure realistically it will be both because I, I do like the balance. Like I'm going to want something to work on in a project, but then I'm also going to want to preserve that downtime that I'm giving myself. So I'm sure it'll be both. Bike Shed is one of those. So even though I'm taking four weeks of vacation, we're still going to chat each week, which I'm really looking forward to because I enjoy our chats. So I'll still be keeping up with the show during that time. So that will also be something that's how I'll probably get my technical fix is I'll get to chat with you each week. Well, yeah, I'm very glad that we'll uh, get to continue chatting. And I'm frankly envious of the four weeks. Thinking back over my working career, the longest I've ever taken is two weeks. Like at Christmas, I'll often take that just because it tends to, to work out. But I've never gone further than that, even between jobs or anything like that. But there's something really nice. Like there's that first week, you're just kind of decompressing. And the second week, you're really easing into relaxing. And then two more weeks on top of that feel like, uh, frankly, I have no idea. I've never done it. I hope it goes really well for you. 
Thanks. Me too. I suspect I'll go through a similar flow where that first week is going to be weird and different and just out of my normal schedule. So probably finding stuff to keep me busy during that first week will help as I start to decompress. I'm also aware just how one, this is very fortunate, the thing I'm about to do. And it's something that piqued my interest, honestly, back when I started in web development, because I noticed a number of people around me had pushed so hard, either through a boot camp or getting their first job and then leveling up for the first couple of years that a number of people were leaving web development for like six to 12 months because they were just hitting that sort of like burnout. Like, I don't want to do this anymore and I want to take a break. So maybe I can come back to it. And I also hit that spot where it's like, I really just want to walk away from this. Like, I really loved this, but I'm in a zone where I'm not enjoying this anymore. It's too much. But I didn't want to go that hard pivot of where I'm just going to walk away from six months because that also felt very scary to me. So it's been top of mind to continue working towards that goal of always finding balance. And this is a bigger shift in taking time off. So I don't know if it's necessarily in that balance zone, but it is something that has been on my mind where I wanted to, instead of taking a huge chunk of time off where I was initially feeling some burnout, was just then being more aggressive about protecting my day-to-day time and then finding balance that way. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see how this goes. The idea of a sabbatical is something that's always been intriguing to me, and it doesn't exist much in the tech world as far as I can tell, but it exists more in like academia and, and other spaces. Uh, and actually, I was just remembering that Basecamp does, in fact, have a formal sabbatical policy. I just pulled it up here to remind myself. So every three years, an employee can take 30 days paid sabbatical, um, which I find really interesting. I'm also intrigued in the like more what I think is the more traditional like every seven years you get six months off or some structure like that and it's a bigger bank of time but it allows for you know if someone's getting a little bit bored or burnt out or frustrated or whatever time to go and just kind of have an adventure and explore and still ideally stay with that company that's i think the like flip side of it what's the what's the exchange here but that idea of like semi-regularly taking a step back and having a chance for sort of deeper renewal and reset uh, is very intriguing to me so i'm glad you have designed your own personal sabbatical i'm excited for that reflection i do think it's very important for people to find that space maybe it's you know maybe it is for a day maybe it's a week maybe it's a month however long it is but just taking that time to reflect on how things are going and sort of like check in with yourself so i think that is one of the biggest things that i'm looking forward to about this month is having that check in and seeing how things are going and then coming back to work feeling refreshed Speaking of work and some changes that are going on, in a previous episode, I'd alluded to some rather big, juicy internal changes at ThoughtBot, and I couldn't speak about the changes at the moment because they were still in flight, but now, now that the dust has settled, I'd love to chat about them with you. So the first big announcement is that ThoughtBot is officially a remote-first work-from-anywhere company, which is incredibly exciting for a couple of reasons. So in regards to hiring, it means we can open up our roles to more candidates from farther reaches across the globe. It's also true for clients. So we already work with a number of clients outside of the U.S. and U.K., but this will help further that expansion. And then on the flip side of becoming a remote team, we are still a team that values getting together. So when it's safe again to get together, we're going to explore on-site client work and flexible office spaces for like design sprints and project kickoffs, some of the things that we really enjoy still getting together to collaborate on. So that's one chunk of the big news. I have a second one. I'm going to pause there. That's super interesting to hear the sort of full embracing of remote or remote first as the framing there. It really does feel like this past year has been a tipping point where I expect many organizations will go back to some amount of in-person. I think the sort of mind share, especially in the tech world, has just shifted so much that I think it will be really hard to be competitive if you are 
truly an in-person office. Or I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but the idea that there are certain personality types that may gravitate towards that. And so you may see this sort of split, but I really do think it'll be difficult to be competitive in terms of hiring if remote is not at least a portion of that strategy now, whereas I don't know that that was as true before. So totally makes sense and interesting to see ThoughtBot you know, formalize that. Yeah, I completely agree. And for a number of the reasons that you just said, that was part of the reason that shifted us to pursue a remote first company, which is a big shift for us because we are people that really enjoy being in the office together and then also joining our client teams and being in the office with them. But given the way that the world has changed, and then also as people do need to move to be closer to family, it is really exciting in terms of how it opens up our hiring capabilities and who we're working with. And we'll still find ways to get together and collaborate in a way that still feels us uh, remotely uh, similar to our previous existence. Nice. <laughs> the other big announcement is how we've restructured our teams. So previously, because we were all working at a specific location, but now that that is not a factor anymore, our teams are now organized by the type of client projects that we want to work on. So one of the challenges that I have found with working with Alba is it is hard to grow in a specific specialty area because we are pulled in so many different directions. So we need to be good at a number of technologies and languages and working with legacy code and mentoring and building MVPs and the list just kind of goes on. So we have taken a step back to decide that instead of being bound to our geographical location and having that form teams, instead that we're going to give people the options of which teams and which type of projects that they would like to work on instead. So being us, uh, we had to have a little bit of nerdy fun with this. Uh, so our teams are rocket themed. So we have Ignite team, Liftoff team, Boost and Mission Control. So Ignite is the early stage. It's where we are helping teams with rapid validation and greenfield MVPs could be design sprints, prototyping and preparing investors for pitches. And then we have our liftoff team, which is really that MVP projects, but bigger and longer projects that we expect to take over a longer time. Or it could be that they are facing a more complex challenge. Perhaps they are trying to launch a product into a heavily regulated space like healthcare finance. And then the Boost team, which is me, hooray, where we are helping existing teams and products scale through high growth pains. So specifically, we're helping teams with mentorship, um, leveling up the team. It could be also just working on feature development, optimizing their systems and perhaps their processes. And then mission control. So this is the team that's focused on DevOps and maintenance and code audits. And this is the perfect team for, say, if you have someone that is a head of technology or founder, but they don't really have a team to manage their site stability and keeping up with some of the security procedures that they need to monitor, then mission control is the team that can help with those problems. Now, this is so interesting to see how this idea is developing and see what seems like a formalization of something that existed before, but now having people that can really lean into the the facet of the work that they're interested in. And so is it mentorship more of that? Or is it, no, I really just love to take a nascent idea and start coding and build something as quickly as possible. And it's interesting to me that like I, I would struggle to pick from between those. There's something intriguing about all of them, but I think it does make sense to try and structure it that way. And especially now that rather than being these location specific offices, now you have the entire ThoughtBot team, but you can restructure them in this way that now you can have deep expertise, say in Postgres and scaling and things like that, or in deployment and infrastructure and ops and, and that, which was, I think, something that ThoughtBot dabbled in, but was always more of a, a dabbling. And so now it can be more of a formal offering. And also the idea that a client 
could transition between these different stages. That was something that often happened in my experience at ThoughtPop, but was much less formal. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, you've definitely you got a round of funding. Cool. Now we're in a different space of work, but didn't necessarily change how the work was happening. And so now being a little more formal, uh, I'm really interested to see how this plays out. Yeah, I'm also intrigued to see how this goes because I am someone that I really enjoy the variety, but I also really want to feel concrete in several of my skills and know that I'm growing in a specific area. And with ThoughtBot, I felt like I'm always growing in like five different areas at once. So I'm excited to get to focus on, I am someone specifically with the Boost team, I'm very excited to help focus on mentorship and processes and working with larger teams. Those will also likely be longer engagements. So instead of doing like a four-week or eight-week MVP or client project. Instead, I'm probably going to be with a team that's more like four months to anywhere to maybe up to like 12 months. So I'll really have time to be part of that team and understand how I can best help that team. So I'm I'm very excited for the ways that this lets people find their niche and then really hone in on the things that they like about consulting and the particular projects that they really like contributing to. We're also hiring. So if any or all of that sounds interesting to you, then check out our jobs page by going to thoughtbot.com forward slash jobs. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. I do want to circle back, though, and put you a little bit on the spot because you'd mentioned that you would struggle as to which team that you would choose. And I've announced that I went with Boost because I really like working with teams for a longer term and also the mentorship that goes along with that. But I want to push just a little bit. Do you know which team that you would probably go with if you had to make a call today? I like how soft you are in the delivery of that. Like, if you had to, do you think you could come to it? Like, no, no, no. We're going to put me on the spot. I'm going to make a decision. (laughs) Sincerely, there is something about each of them that is really interesting to me. But in terms of where I'm at right now and sort of what I'm looking for in the world, I think it would be Liftoff, I think is the one. Which is the second one, MVP-ish? Yeah, there's Ignite. That's the like very short sprint, rapid validation, Greenfield MVP, and then Liftoff is the second one. So the more complex, likely longer term MVP type projects. Yeah, so I think it's that. I'm less interested in the like true early design sprint. I think that's a wonderful approach, but it's not necessarily a thing that captures my personal attention. I think like I want to kick in right after that and and do the building, which is sort of it's sort of a blend between the first two. But if I think about the work that I want to be doing, it's probably more in that first engineer on a team defining the tech, deciding on the architecture, trying to fight tooth and nail against microservices you know, some hiring, things like that. That's the work that's really intriguing to me. And that I think aligns most with that particular, the liftoff group. So I I think if you're forcing me to pick, I think I'm liftoff. I mean, it was a very soft force, but yes, I was trying to force you to pick. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that resonates with me. You are the new new, the stable new new. Ooh, and then stable, I'm, I'm new, definitely new. here. All right. <laughs> well, uh, good to know that I have a strong personal brand then. But um, yeah, shifting gears just a little bit, uh, we should probably answer one of those listener questions. And just as a note, in case anyone missed this, uh, there was a blog post and some tweets that went out, but we are soliciting additional listener questions. We love getting to answer these. And so we want a few new ones to be coming in. So we will include a link in the show notes to the Google form we've updated. Uh, You can still tweet at us or email us, but we now have a Google form to try and formalize this whole process just a little bit more. So please do send us in your questions and we will answer them on the upcoming episodes. But for now, we have one that's been in the queue for a little while. So we, we really owe it an answer. So this question came to us from Rain, and Rain said, I was wondering what your go-to stack is these days. I just started programming in Ruby, and even though I've since moved to React slash Node, I still try to follow a bit of what you folks are doing. These days, we're reevaluating our stack in the company I work for and was wondering what you would choose as a GraphQL-centered backend stack. Would you go for GraphQL Ruby or go for something entirely different? Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Hope you're safe and well. And then uh, they add a bit of context after that, which is to give you some more background, I've lately been reading the book Production Ready GraphQL, which is very enlightening. It makes the case for having a GraphQL schema that is not too tightly coupled to your DB schema. So having something like Hasura or PostgreSQL is nice since they leverage the power of Postgres, but this comes at the cost of being very tightly coupled to your DB schema and GraphQL schema. In the Node ecosystem, there are different solutions such as Connects, a query builder, or different ORMs that you can use with Express or Koa. So I'm really interested to hear how you would approach this, having so much experience with different projects, clients, and languages. So to offer some quick thoughts off the top of my head, in terms of GraphQL, particularly in a Ruby stack, I haven't really seen much competition for the GraphQL Ruby gem. There really seems to be like one contender in that space. It's solid, and I think it's evolved really nicely over the years. So initial versions of it were a little closer to the JavaScript implementation, which wasn't a great fit for Ruby, but they've evolved it. So it's now more class and object-based and some things that just fit better in the Ruby world. So overall, strong recommendation for that I think is really great. There's a pro offering if you want to upgrade to that. Lots of great things in that space. So yeah, in terms terms of building a Ruby GraphQL API, that's what I would reach for. And definitely, I think the question of Hasura or PostgreSQL, which will automatically generate a GraphQL schema on top of Postgres, that is definitely something that I would avoid for the long term, because I think, like you said, it very strongly couples to the database. But I think shifting it around just a little bit, more generally, Steph, what do you think about in terms of go-to stack these days? Do you reach for API-driven things? Is that something that you're increasingly doing? What are you thinking in terms of generally how do we build apps? Or what questions would you ask perhaps to frame the question a little bit differently? Is an API definitely necessary? Yeah, lots of good questions. Specifically, this person had also alluded to the idea that they are reevaluating their tech stack at the company that they're working for. So I'd really be intrigued to know what problems they're looking to solve as they're reevaluating that tech to then help guide my response as to then what I would recommend. In terms of building something new, yeah, it's kind of hard to like be put on the spot and say, what's your favorite tech stack? Because it's one of those famous, it depends kind of moments of what are your needs? Can we start simple and then grow? And by simple, I mean, just server rendered HTML, perhaps like a Rails app, and then go from there. Or do we need to go ahead and pull in something that's like React because we know we're going to have some more dynamic interactions on the front end or perhaps something like Elm? So I think there's a couple of really good questions here. And one, how are you addressing pain with your stack and then applying technology to resolve that pain? And then specifically, do you really need to then build out an API or what does sort of your backends look like? Do you need to have a separate backend and front end? And I feel like this question really fits well with the work that you've been doing recently in regards to playing around with like Inertia.js and Svelte. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on how you're approaching building a backend. 
Well, yeah, the, the past few episodes I've talked uh, in some detail about the explorations with Inertia and Svelte, and Inertia in particular, I think, is the one that's really informing the architecture of the apps that I'm building, and it's been a purposeful move away from API-driven, fully client-rendered, full, like, lots of client state management and things like that, and I found that super valuable to the point that I would now, more so than at any other time, push back on the idea that we need to build an app that is fully client-rendered, fully... Uh, state management on the client side, all of that, API-driven, et cetera, et cetera, even if we have an API. So if we have a mobile app, that's going to sort of necessitate an API. Um, You could go the Basecamp Turbolinks type route where you have a web view that's wrapping around things. But in my experience, a lot of companies are looking for a high-fidelity mobile experience, and that just requires at a minimum, something like React Native, but then more likely Swift or Kotlin and you know the respective UI frameworks on mobile, and then you're going to need an API for that. But even if you have that, I'm not sure that I'm convinced at this point that you should be using that for how you build out the web. I think there's ways to introduce objects within your system that can encapsulate data transformation, so like command objects or query objects, and then the GraphQL API can consume that, but then you can also have traditional controllers and use those and render out the UI with inertia and svelte and things like that. Or there's a bunch of the others. There's Hotwire that has been pushed now. And I still find Rails to be an incredibly productive framework to work in and to be able to manage all of the other complexities, background jobs and mailers and you know all of those sort of things. So I would ask the question of do we have to go in that direction? I have been poking at trying to integrate GraphQL into my inertia work just because I like GraphQL as a way to let the views sort of dictate what data they need, but not necessarily over an API, which sounds weird and is complicated, which is why it's still an exploration at this point. But I think the API-driven part is what gives me pause and the separation of the front end and the back end. That is the thing that I'm continuing to question at this point. Yeah, that resonates with me in regards to striving to find ways to avoid having a separation of client side and back end, and then just initially building out an API when perhaps you don't need that. And you can stick with your first iteration is server rendered HTML and you go with that approach. And then you start to add on other technologies as then you do need a, as you mentioned, a higher fidelity experience for users. So I very much appreciate that approach of starting simpler and then scaling as you need to. In regards to GraphQL, I am curious because with writing GraphQL, I tend to view that as it really helps if you have experience with types. So if you are working with a team that doesn't have experience with types, they're feeling some pain around their APIs, perhaps APIs are changing and then they're forgetting to update the clients and things are breaking. So then that is driving them towards considering using GraphQL to help those miscommunications between the two, the back end and the front end. But if that team doesn't have any experience with types and they say they've only written Ruby, would you still advocate for using GraphQL? Would you advocate that they first work with another typed language or perhaps have someone with some type knowledge then work specifically on that porting over to a GraphQL endpoint? That's an interesting framing. It's not really something that I've thought about, but now that you ask it, I think you can probably get away with not having that, particularly in Ruby. You do end up annotating the GraphQL schema as you're defining it on the Ruby side with the types, but they're very much the sort of primitive types. GraphQL schema is very much a this is a string, this is an object which has properties which are strings or booleans or whatever, but you're not getting into more complex types. You're not you're not actually leveraging the type system in a deep way, um, which is fine for what it is. But then on the front end, you can just consume that with JavaScript. You don't need to use TypeScript or a typed language. If you are in a typed language, you can take advantage of it, and that's really great. But I think in terms of introducing it to a team, I think you can sort of adopt as much of the typedness as you want. 
and gradually scale into that. And especially because it's primarily about primitive values, it becomes easier. So you're like, oh, that string is nullable. That's good to know. I should deal with the case where that string might be missing. Or more interestingly, like this object is nullable, so I should use the safe operator to traverse into it. That's really useful information. And you can sort of start to embrace typed definitions there, but not go all the way to complex generic functions and things like that, or uh, discriminated union types or other things that I think are incredibly powerful and useful for defining real systems, but also far more complicated and have more overhead and, and will take longer for a team to ramp up on. So I think you can actually with GraphQL sort of dip your toe into the world of typed programming, but sort of choose however much you want. Cool. That's perfect. That was really my the heart of my question was like, can I safely enter this world of GraphQL and not know exactly how to work with types or what this is going to be like, but then still feel safe with that exploration? And to provide some of the context for my question, I think what's driving that curiosity is I've worked with teams that are feeling pain from too much coupling in their code. And then they think, well, what if we just created firmer boundaries and we started extracting stuff to microservices or to gyms, or maybe we even try to use Rails engines, and then we are forcing ourselves to respect the those boundaries. Although with Rails engines, I don't think that's actually true. But they're looking for ways to solve that specific pain with coupling. And so they're looking for that sort of like hard fix that then everybody has to abide by. And so I was curious if GraphQL sort of like falls into that same category of like you have a problem. And so you were looking for a hard solution that then everybody has to respect. But then I'm curious what other complications that team may run into. Because if you're experiencing coupling, then just extracting stuff to microservices in a gym isn't going to change how you're writing your code. You're still going to write coupled code. So similar if you are using GraphQL to then enforce types across your API schema, perhaps that will address some questions. But I was just curious if there were some other areas where you've seen teams fall down where they've reached for GraphQL, but it hasn't really solved their problem. The type question is interesting. And like I said, it's not something that I've really considered, nor would it be the thing that would sort of drive me away from GraphQL. Uh, the thing that would give me pause is I think GraphQL is worth doing in a very sincere and I would say significant way. Like you can just introduce a REST API and have a couple of endpoints and people can grab whatever data they need. But I've found a ton of value. And coming back to actually the question where they were talking about Hasura or PostgreSQL, which are great ways to spin up a GraphQL API very quickly, but it's very, very coupled to your database implementation, to the tables and to the columns and join tables and everything like that. And what I found valuable with GraphQL is it's an opportunity to define the data access layer that is not 100% coupled to the database. And if you're going to do it, I think it's worth being purposeful about that and worth taking your time and actually having folks sit down and think it through. And what's what's the shape of the data that we need? How do we want to be accessing it? In a lot of ways, I think driving from the front end to determine that is a really good idea. Whereas mm -hmm. typically we'll say like, this is the shape of the data in the database. So let us now expose that. But instead having more of like a pull from the client side, what does the client need in order to provide an interesting and useful experience to end users and then have that sort of shape the GraphQL API, which then connects to the database and all of that, but doing it sort of in that direction and being very purposeful about how you structure it. And so if a company is just like, yeah, we just need an API, we just need to throw something up there real quick. I'm like, I don't know that I would recommend GraphQL if you're not really going to care about the data access layer that you're building. But if that's a thing that you care about, if you're expecting to have you know three different mobile clients and an admin backend and this other thing, and you want to make sure you can control how people are interacting with the data, I think GraphQL can be fantastic for that. But knowing where you're at on that spectrum can help define whether or not it's, it's a great option. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that nuance in regards to where GraphQL can be really useful and then other ways where perhaps it's not quite the right fit for your team. 
at a minimum, it's it's effort. And is it worth investing that effort? And so, you know, always got to ask what's the cost of the thing. But with that, uh, I think that was sort of an, an adventure of a question, but it touched on a bunch of different things, uh, as things often do on the bike shed. But uh, yeah, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Also, we will have a form linked to in the show notes, which you can use for questions as well. Ooh, fancy. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.